Father, we pray now as we come to your word that we would do so with all gladness that you have spoken to us. We don't have to wonder about you. We don't have to imagine what you're like. You have taught us about yourself and we should be glad, Lord. And we should be serious, God, that we come to your word, that we hold it in our hands, that the king of the universe speaks to us. So let us listen carefully today, Father. Let us listen for eternity. For these matters that we handle are no small matters. But we hear from a great king who has the power of life and death, eternal life and eternal damnation in his hands. You are our God, and so we ask that you speak to us now. And we pray by your grace that you've offered us in the Lord Jesus, that your spirit would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things from your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our study this morning is going to come primarily from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 17, but so that you might have the backdrop clear in your minds, I'd like to begin by rereading verses 1 through 10, which we studied a week ago. You read along with me silently as I read verses 1 through 10 aloud. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved." In essence, what we said and what Paul is saying is that uh, some folks were concerned that Jesus had returned and that they had missed it. And Paul says, don't be frightened. You'll know that Jesus is coming when he comes. He tells us elsewhere, the Bible does, that every eye will see him. But he says, furthermore, Jesus won't come until there's a great apostasy, a great falling away from the faith, and until the man of lawlessness, we usually call him the Antichrist, appears on the scene. As we read that passage last Sunday, I suspect that some of you thinking about the Antichrist and thinking about how people are led astray by him, some of you may have thought to yourself, even as we read last week or as I spoke last week, how could people be so foolish? How could people have the gospel and have the Bible and yet fall for the Antichrist? And maybe some of you have thought that. 
regarding the first century inhabitants of Galilee and Judea, the people who saw Jesus face to face. And and some of you have said, and I've heard people say, and I may have said at one time, I don't understand how anyone could see Jesus face to face, could witness his miracles, could hear his teachings and still reject the Messiah. If I'd have been there, certainly I wouldn't have done what they did. It just doesn't make sense to me. How could they miss something so obvious? And even more close to home, some of you may have thought that about people with whom you've shared the gospel. You share with them about Jesus. You've laid everything out for them. You know by looking in their eyes that they understand what you've just told them. Perhaps they even agree with what you tell them. They say, I know this is the right thing, but they won't give their lives to Christ. And you walk away from the meeting, you get in your car and you're driving down the road and you find yourself thinking, how could anyone pass this up? How could anyone be so crazy in the face of this wonderful news that Christ came into the world to die for sinners? How could anyone reject him? How could anyone, verse 10, fail to receive the love of the truth so as to be saved? Those are important questions. I think many of you will find that at least in your conscience, if not out loud, you've asked these kinds of things. And we begin to get some answers when we look closely at verse 10. How is it that people can hear the good news, understand what it says, and even agree with what it says, and yet many of them won't come to Jesus? How can that be? Well, look at verse 10 carefully. What is the real problem for those who don't believe? Is it that they don't have evidence for the truth? No. Is it that they can't understand the truth? No. What's the problem? According to verse 10, the problem is that they would not receive the love of the truth. That's the problem. It's a problem of not loving the truth of the gospel. People don't disbelieve because they're ignorant. People don't disbelieve because they don't know the right answers. People disbelieve because they simply love other things more than they love the truth, more than they love the gospel. That's the problem. Despite what our heads know, human beings always follow their hearts. We always go after what we love and what our hearts think will be best for us. Sometimes we convince ourselves that we're making a smart decision, but we're only doing so because we think that it will work out good for us in the end because we love ourselves. We always do what we love. That's why people get into bad marriages and continue in bad habits and make bad decisions. It's not because they don't know better. It's not because they're not educated enough. It's because they follow their hearts. And our hearts, says Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9, are more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. So these deceitful hearts that lead us into all sorts of bad decisions are the same deceitful hearts that convince people that my way is better than the truth. That convince people that independence, doing things on your own, is better than putting your faith wholly in Jesus. They convince people that sin really isn't as big a deal as this guy's making it out to be. So if there's nothing else you remember this morning, I want you to remember this. Faith in Jesus, or lack thereof, is not a matter of the understanding. It is not a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. That's why some of your friends and some of you have heard the simple gospel again and again and again, and you don't believe. You understand, you agree, but you don't believe. You don't love the truth. It's a problem in the human 
heart. So much so that a person could read the Bible from cover to cover, understand everything that they read, agree with everything that they read, and still not come to Christ. Not because they're ignorant, but because they don't love the truth so as to be saved. To put it into a metaphor, these people aren't physically blind and they are not mentally blind. The problem is with the eyes of their hearts. They're spiritually blind. They're spiritually cold. They are spiritually hard-hearted, spiritually dead, the Bible calls them. Some of you this morning may be in that exact position. Some of you hear every single word that's said every week. You understand it. You can even get it and read it if you want to make sure that you got it. You know that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and yet you remain unsaved yourself. Because... You do not love the truth. You know the truth. You do not love it. And you do not love Jesus. So what Paul is reminding us here, though he doesn't use this metaphor in verse 10, is that human beings are spiritually blind. There is a veil, he says in 2 Corinthians 3, laid over our eyes and laid over our hearts. But in verse 11 and in verse 12, Paul goes on to say that there's a further reason why people don't believe. The first problem is that they're spiritually cold, spiritually blind. They do not love the truth. But then he says something else. Let's begin reading again in the middle of verse 10 and continue on through the end of verse 12. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, if you're listening with any degree of interest this morning, those verses ought to be for you among the most frightening verses in the Bible. And they ought to be astonishing as well. Did you hear what Paul said? Let me read it again and let me see if I can paraphrase then what he's saying. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved... For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, let me see if I can tell you what Paul is saying in my own words. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians and to you and to me basically this. If you decide that you won't love God's truth, that you won't love what God says, that you won't love the gospel, that your way is better than God's way. If you decide, verse 12, that you rather take pleasure in wickedness and do things your own way, then God will make you double blind. You're already blind because the eyes of your hearts are closed. But God will add to that a deluding influence, he says in verse 11. God will further cloud your vision. God will push you deeper into the darkness and the mist of unbelief. God will do it, he says. And why will he do it? Verse 12, to make sure that you get the judgment that you deserve. If you refuse to love the truth, God will push you further into falsehood to make sure that those who did not believe the truth will get the judgment they deserve. That is why people fall for the Antichrist. That is why people believe what is false. Verse 11. First of all, because they don't love what's true. And second of all, as a result of their unbelief, God himself pushes them further into the darkness. Now, that may not be immediately comfortable for some of us to hear that. 
But it's right here in black and white, isn't it? God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Let me put it in one sentence. If we continue to reject the truth, God will eventually close the door of opportunity upon us. It's as simple as that. If you continue to hear the truth and fail to love the truth, God will close the door of opportunity upon you. Your heart will become so hard that you'll never believe. Your mind will become so deluded and confused that you'll believe everything but what you know is true. So can I say to you this morning, some of you who may be here who are dabbling in religion, but who as of yet have chosen not to receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, Can I say to you, don't mess around with God. Don't delay. Don't wait until you find yourself the subject of verses 11 and 12. And don't assume it'll never happen to me. We assume that about all sorts of things and it happens to us. Don't assume that verses 11 and 12 won't happen to you if you're fooling around with God right now. Behold, Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 6, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not wait and play games with verses 11 and 12. Now, I want to call attention for all of us to the fact that all of us at one time in our lives, and some of us even today, but all of us at one time in our lives were just like the people in verse 10, weren't we? All of us at one time were deceived by wickedness. All of us at one time had failed to receive the love of the truth. All of us at one time were lost and separated from God. Lost in our sins and separated from God. Just to make sure that we we understand that that's where we all were at one time, Paul says in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. What's Paul saying? He's saying nobody came into the world loving the truth. Nobody came into the world loving God. Nobody came into the world as a believer. All of us came into the world as unrighteous people who didn't do good, who couldn't do good, who didn't seek for God. So all of us, therefore, even if we now believe, at one point in our lives were just like the people in verse 10. We were under the same indictment. God could have said of us as He said of them that we had not received the love of the truth so as to be saved. Some of us lived in that state for a very long time. Some of us became believers when we were children. But we all, at one time, had failed to receive the love of the truth. Now, if that's so, and it is, then it poses an interesting problem for us. Because if we were all sinners, verse 10, who had not received the love of the truth, And if, verses 11 and 12, for this reason, God drives people like that further into the darkness so that they will believe what is false, how is it that God didn't drive us further into the darkness? How is it that we find that some of us now believe that we're now called children of God, that God didn't drive us away, that we left the darkness and came into the light of Christ? If God takes people who don't believe and drives them further into the darkness... What's the deal with us who do believe? How do we explain that? 
Some people say, well, I was wise enough to choose to follow Jesus. Well, didn't we just read that Paul says there's none who understands? It's not your wisdom that got you to God. And some people say, well, I wasn't as bad as so-and-so, and so I came to Jesus. But didn't Paul tell us in verse 12 of Romans 3 that there's none who does good? And some people say, well, I don't know how it happened, but one day I just decided that I was going to find God. But didn't Paul tell us that there's no one who seeks for God? I think he did. The truth of the matter from Romans 3 is that sinful human beings do not want to find God, nor do they have the capacity to find God. They don't have the ability to leave the deception of wickedness in verse 10. They don't have the ability to receive the love of the truth. So it would seem then, comparing Romans 3 that says we can't seek for God, and comparing 2 Thessalonians 2 that says people who don't seek for God and don't love the truth, God just drives them further into the darkness, the logic then would seem to say that all humankind is doomed. That all humankind is stuck in the fate of verses 11 and 12. Because we at one time didn't believe, God would send a deluding influence on us so that we would believe what is false in order that we all may be judged who did not believe the truth. And that's exactly what we deserve. Before we go any further, we need to say that's exactly what we deserve. And if God gave us that, we would be getting nothing more than what is just. And if we stopped reading here at verse 12, then that's all we'd be able to say. We didn't believe the truth. God has rejected us. It's over for us. But we didn't stop reading, or or we won't stop reading in verses 11 and 12. We're going to carry on. But let me read verses 11 and 12 to you one more time, and then I want you to note the glorious change of direction that Paul makes in verse 13. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Let me pose our question one more time. How can people, all of us, who clearly at one time did not love the truth so as to be saved, who did not even want to love the truth, Romans chapter 3, How can people like us receive the truth? How can people like us be saved? How could the Thessalonians, how could the Cincinnatians be out from under this problem? The answer that Paul gives is God. God. He doesn't say we should give thanks to you because you did this or that or the other thing. He says we should give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning For salvation. Our hearts are sinful. Human beings always follow their sinful, deceitful hearts. And therefore, if less of themselves, human beings will never choose God. So if God is going to save any human beings, Paul says he must first choose them. And that's exactly what the verse says he has done. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Hear what Paul says. If we have received the love of the truth so as to be saved, whom should we thank? Whom does he thank in verse 13? Not us. For it wasn't our wisdom that chose God. It was his mercy that chose us. He doesn't thank us. It wasn't that 
we all of a sudden decided to love the truth that we first loved God, but that God first loved us. He calls them brethren beloved by the Lord. He doesn't say we thank God for you, brethren, who love the Lord. He says brethren beloved by the Lord. You should always give thanks to God for your salvation. If God had not chosen some of you from the beginning, you would never have chosen God. You would never have believed. You would never have come to receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And again, just like what we read in verses 11 and 12, verse 13 may not seem immediately palatable to some of you either. You say to yourself, well, I want the right to choose God. Isn't that how God works? Isn't God a gentleman? That's not what Paul says. Paul says God is a gentleman. He's so gentle that he chooses to give some of us better than we deserve. But he's not a cruel gentleman that sees people going off the cliff and just says, you can't help yourself and I'm not going to do anything for you. He's not that kind of gentleman. He's a gentleman who runs to the cliff and grabs people who are trying to kill themselves and saves them from themselves. If we want it any other way, then our only alternative is to find ourselves in the vicious cycle of verses 10 through 12, isn't it? Because we all know that we didn't believe the truth. And so if we want to eliminate God choosing us, verse 13, then all we have left is God rejecting us. So only one of the two, according to these verses. So why do some people believe and others do not? Why do some of you have brothers and sisters who grew up in the same family as you, hearing the same message as you, and they don't believe and you do? Or they believe and you don't? What's the deal with that? What's the difference between the people who are judged in verse 12 and who are saved in verse 13? It has nothing to do with the people. It has everything to do with God. God who is merciful. God who chooses some to avoid the faith that all of us deserve. Bring it closer to home. Why are you a Christian? Why are you saved? Why do you believe? If your ultimate answer to that question begins with the word I, then you've missed it. Someone says, why are you a Christian? And you say, I, you've missed it. Hopefully they don't hear anything the rest of what you say. Why are you a Christian? Why did you believe? Answer, verse 13, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification and faith in the truth. Your sanctification and your faith in Jesus is God's doing. And I want you to see now in the rest of verse 13 and then also in verses 14 through 17 that this process isn't robotic. Some people hear this and they say, well, God chooses people and so it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter if we share the gospel. It doesn't matter how I live. God's going to do what God's going to do. It's not that robotic. God doesn't snap his fingers. God doesn't wave his magic wand so that you wake up someday and you're a Christian without ever realizing what happened to you. That's not what Paul describes in the rest of these verses. God's choice of individuals works much more organically than that. Something happens to us so that we will believe the truth. And it's something that we can perceive and something that we can understand. John Newton understood it when he wrote in Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He didn't just write, well, God's grace came and and now I'm a Christian. I, I don't know what happened. He says, what happened was there were scales on my eyes and they fell off one day so that I could see. Or as Charles Wesley puts it, my chains fell off. 
My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what happens to those whom God chooses. He doesn't just say, hocus pocus, you're a Christian. What he does, rather, is make scales fall from your eyes. He lifts the the mist of darkness that's been over you spiritually. He turns the lights on so that now, in a moment, you see the truth more clearly than you ever saw it before. And you begin to choose it. And you begin to love the truth, verse 10. And you begin to believe it. And you begin to obey it. And what is the truth that you see and choose and love and believe and obey? Once God has opened your eyes. Listen to verses 13 and 17. I think Paul describes some things that ought to be clear in our vision if God has really opened our eyes. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now here we begin. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Now, there's a lot there and I want to untangle it for you. But the the big question here is, how would you know that the eyes of your heart had been opened? How would you know that God had given you new spiritual life? What kind of realities would you begin to see and believe and love and choose and trust and obey? What kind of realities would would fill up the field of your vision if you were really alive spiritually and could see spiritually? I see five of them, five realities here, five words, if you will, on an eye chart. You go in for your eye exam. How do they know if you can see well? Put the chart up before you. Well, there are some things on the Christian eye chart that ought to be very clear to those who truly have open eyes. And I want to show them to you five words, and then we'll try to unpack those words. First is the word gospel. The word gospel. Paul says in verse 14 that if you are saved, it is because God called you through our gospel. So it's the message of our gospel, as Paul calls it, that God used to call people to himself. Our gospel is the ointment, if you will, that God uses to open blind spiritual eyes. And it's our gospel, then, that becomes the earliest, most indelible picture in the eyes of a new believer. If this is what God uses to open your eyes, then the very first thing you see is our gospel. It's like the mother's face stamped in the memory of of a newborn child. Children's eyes aren't very clear when they're born. They can't see a lot of things clearly, but they're always so close to their mother that they can see their face. This is one of the first things, if not the first thing that they see after those blurry lights get out of their way and they give you the baby to the mama. The very first thing the baby is supposed to see is mom's face. The baby always remembers his mother's face. And that's the way it is with a believer. If there's one thing he knows... If there's one thing he loves and he can see clearly, it's the very first sight that he saw when his spiritual eyes were opened. Namely, what Paul calls our gospel. And what does he mean by our gospel? Does he mean our gospel is different than someone else's gospel? No, he's just referring to the gospel that he and his associates preached. He describes it in a a very succinct 
couple of sentences in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Let me, let me read it to you. Here he calls it what is of first importance, our gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the message that Paul here calls our gospel. That's the message he went around preaching to people. Jesus came into the world, God's own Son, lived a sinless life, and died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament talked about this. He was buried, but on the third day He rose again. That's the key message for Paul. That's the key message for us. And that's, in a nutshell, what Paul means when he says our gospel, the message of Jesus, whose death and resurrection is the great hope for sinners. And that's the message that will be most clear and most vital to every person who's had their spiritual eyes opened. The gospel will be the theme of their life. The gospel will be the truth that Paul says that they love so dearly, so as to be saved. Verse 10. The gospel ought to be the clearest thing in your vision if your eyes are open. I just want to ask you if you've received the love of this truth. Have you received the love of the gospel message? Is the message of Christ crucified and risen and coming again the theme of your life? I'm not just asking if you understand it or agree with it. The devil does that. Is it the theme of your life? Is it what you love? Is it all your hope and peace as we sing? If not, how can you be sure that your spiritual eyes have really been opened. Are you sure that you are a Christian? Number one, gospel. Number two, we should see very clearly in our sight the word faith. Faith. Paul says here, verse 13, God has chosen you from the beginning. For salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Faith in the truth. In other words, when God has opened your spiritual eyes so that you've begun to love the truth, verse 10, you realize that you must attach yourself to God by faith in the truth. Verse 13. Faith is simply the Bible word for trust. Complete trust in God. And in the Gospel, when God opens our eyes, what we should see is there's no hope for us apart from Jesus. And we should see how infinitely trustworthy is Jesus. And then we should begin to really believe, trust, put our faith in the fact that God will forgive us and will give us eternal life on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now again, salvation doesn't happen just automatically with a wave of a wand. It's not a simple matter of knowing all the facts and agreeing with their validity. Salvation happens when we actually bank our life, bank our future on the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that that includes me. You have to ask if you're banking on that, not just if you know and agree with that. Only if God opens your eyes will you do so. So let me ask you again, is your faith really in Jesus? Are you really banking on Jesus? Is the God-man really 
your eternal hope? Or are you planning on saying to God at the judgment seat, well, you know, God, I really I wasn't that awful of a person. I mean, I went to church quite a bit. I tried to take the Lord's Supper when I could. I even joined at one point along the line. I gave my money every week. I took on a servant ministry role. I did all the things that I knew to do. I tried to do my best to live like a Christian. I know I wasn't perfect, but I was pretty religious. And there are a lot of other people, some of them even in the church, who seem to be worse than me. Sound ridiculous to you? Some people, maybe some in this very room, that's what they think of when someone asks them if they're a Christian. They describe all the things that they do and all the reasons that we should really believe that they are saved. And they don't speak of Jesus. They don't speak of the cross. They don't even think of the cross because really, in the end, what they're banking on is their religion and not on Christ. Is that what you're planning on saying? Or have you really received the love of the truth? The truth that it's by faith in Christ alone that you may be saved. I ask you again, are you sure that you are a Christian? Thirdly, the believer should see clearly this word sanctification again in verse 13. We skipped over it briefly. Now let's come back to it. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does sanctification mean? Well, first, let me pause and and back up and ask what Paul means by the word salvation. God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Generally, we think of salvation as I I put my trust in Jesus and I know I'm forgiven. Here, Paul is using the word salvation to refer to final salvation. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Final salvation, arrival in the new heavens and the new earth. And what he's saying then is those who reach the final destination of eternal salvation get there on the road called sanctification. Sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? It's simply the Bible word for becoming holy, more, more specifically becoming more like Jesus. So what Paul's saying then is this. We're saved by faith in Jesus. Yes, initially we come to faith In Christ, and God forgives us our sins, and we're eternally secure by faith, not by good works. But those who have been saved by Christ through faith, not by good works, will desire, once they are a believer, once they've been forgiven, they will desire to live in holiness. It's just that simple. If you're really a Christian, you'll desire to do what God says. You'll desire to be like Jesus. And Paul says that you will, in some measure, succeed. He says, your final salvation goes along the pathway of sanctification. You've been chosen for salvation through sanctification. You get where you're supposed to be going on the road called holiness. Now, what does that mean? How does that apply for us? It means a couple of things. It means that true believers aren't content just to be forgiven. Are we forgiven? Yes. Has God forgiven even the things that we're going to do in the future that he already knows? Yes. But true believers aren't content with that. True believers want to obey. They want to be more like Jesus. They want to grow in grace. Secondly, 
The fact that we've been called for final salvation through sanctification by becoming more like Christ means that there's no such thing as fire insurance. That's not what the Bible teaches. True believers reach final salvation through sanctification, not without sanctification. If you're unsure that that's what this verse is saying, listen to the author of Hebrews. He puts it more simply in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, when he says, Pursue sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Believers, people who have truly been forgiven, begin to grow in Christ's likeness. And isn't that what Paul prays for in verses 16 and 17? It's exactly what he prays for the Thessalonians. That the God who has granted them saving grace, forgiving grace, would also grant the grace that will strengthen their hearts to grow in every good work and word. He's reminding them that they must be sanctified. And he's praying that God will do it. And I just ask you if you're being sanctified. Are you becoming more like Jesus? It's not a question of perfection. It's a question of progression. Are you growing? in your walk with Christ and in your likeness to Christ? Do you have a deep desire to know and to do all the will of God? Are you just content with being kind of religious? Or just content with being forgiven? If you're content in the Christian life without holiness, are you sure that your eyes have been opened? Are you sure that you are a Christian? Fourthly, what should we see? If God has opened our eyes, we should see this word truth. Truth. It's mentioned a few times in this passage. He says in verse 10, Paul does, that those who are saved are saved because they received the love of the truth. And then in verse 13, we saw that we are to put faith in the truth. The truth of the gospel and in Jesus himself who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And then in verse 15, Paul urges the believers to continue in their love for the truth. He says, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. What is Paul talking about? Traditions. What traditions did Paul teach them by word of mouth or by letter? What's the same content, by and large, that we have now in the New Testament, isn't it? Paul's letters are certainly what we have in the New Testament. The things that he taught by word of mouth were the truths of the gospel, gleaned from the Old Testament, explained by the eyewitnesses' accounts, which we have. So in in our modern way of thinking, what Paul is urging the Thessalonians to do, and what he's urging us to do, is to love the truth, to love, therefore, the Bible. To love the Bible. Again, he doesn't use that terminology because they didn't have the Bible all gathered together like we do. But the contents of the traditions taught by word of mouth or by letter from us is what we have in the Bible. Love the Bible, he says. Continue in the traditions you were taught. That's a sign, a true sign, that you're no longer spiritually blind and spiritually cold. That you love the Bible. That the Bible is no longer for you just an interesting religious book. It's no longer for you a confusing book and you say, ah, I don't want to mess with that. It's no longer for you just a collection of writings that a bunch of people talk about in seminaries and other academic places. The Bible now is your daily bread. 
Now you love the truth. That's a sign that God has opened your eyes. So let me ask you, do you love the Bible? I'm not asking how long you read it every day or how often you read it or if you read it every day. That's going to vary with every single individual in this room. What I'm simply asking is if you love it. Do you find that the Word of God feeds your soul and that you want to go to it again and again? Do you have times where your appetite goes sour? Of course. But overall in your life, do you find that the Word of God is what feeds your soul? Do you look forward to Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights because these are feast days where you know you're going to get fed and fed and fed and fed again? When you thought about this Lord's Day, was your concern, was your eagerness more for the spiritual meal that you were going to get at 11 o'clock or for the physical meal that you're going to get at 5 o'clock? Some of you, no doubt, spent much more time and have continued to spend much more time thinking about the food at 5 than preparing for the meal at 11. It's a bad sign for you. Perhaps your appetite has gone sour for a season, so don't just judge by, by today, but ask yourself, overall, do I find that the Word of God is what I hunger for? Am I sure that I love the truth? so as to be saved. Are you sure that you are a Christian? Finally, number five. The word at the bottom of the eye chart, Paul says that we should see if we have come to love the truth, if God has opened our eyes, is the word glory. Glory. Verse 14, Paul says that God called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by gaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? In essence, he means that God has called you so that someday you, like Jesus, may have a glorified body so that you will be fit to be with Jesus in glory so that being with Jesus in glory, you will be able forever to see and enjoy His glory. That's what he means. God is preparing you to gain the glory of Jesus. To gain glory. Some of you grew up in an era where where you referred, and I grew up this way too, calling heaven glory land. or, Or referring to heaven as glory. And the reason for that is because that's where our bodies will be glorified, and that's where we'll see Jesus in all of his glory. And what Paul is saying is, God has called you so that you could be with Jesus in glory. God has called you in order to make you like Jesus and to bring you to be forever with Jesus. And we've been seeing all throughout First and Second Thessalonians that this is one of the clear hopes of the believer, isn't it? One of our great hopes is that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus. It's the hope of eternal life. And the hope of eternal life changes the perspective of this life too, doesn't it? That's one way to know if you're hoping in eternal life, not just because you can sing about it or talk about it, but because it affects the way you live this life. If this life is four, three score and ten, and eternity is eternity, then anyone who's really hoping in eternity is going to live very differently with their 70 years here. Now, if you believe that you're going to be with Jesus in glory, and that's what you look forward to, now you can start to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth. Now, you don't have to fear death. Now, 
Because this life is not all you have. You can begin to obey Jesus and give to whoever asks of you. Now you can sacrifice comfort for the sake of Christ. Now you can move to the third world for Jesus' sake. Because America is not your home, and Africa is not your home, and China is not your home. Heaven's your home. So you can live anywhere you want on this earth, where you have everything you need or not, or everything you think you need. Now, because you have the hope of glory, you can die well. How sad it is to be at someone's bedside who has gone to church all their life and to find that at the end they're either frightened or just unconcerned about heaven. Unconcerned is worse than frightened. Death can be a frightening thing. None of us have lived through it. And so none of us can stand and say, oh, it's not as bad as, it, as they're making it out to be. But how sad it is for people to be on their deathbed and only be concerned about the things of this life. But if you have the hope of glory, you can die well. Let me question you one last time. Do you have the hope of glory? Do you have the hope of glory? Are you able to take risks for Jesus in this life because you know that this life is not all you have? Are you going to die well? Or will you go out kicking and screaming? Are you sure that you see life and death the way someone who's been chosen from the beginning for salvation ought to see life and death? Are you sure that you are 